In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadir Hulakwi. I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books to the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I'm doing a little bit of catch up with the books so there's two books to cover today and then also i can announce the book of the week for this week and actually i'll be doing something a bit different on monday's show where i'll be discussing um this book i'll have psychologist dr jennifer galvin on the show to discuss the book the untethered soul the journey beyond yourself by michael a singer Uh, this is a a very well-known book in the psychology self-help realm um, but I have not read it before. Looking forward to reading it and sharing it with you on Monday's show and being joined by Dr. Jennifer Galvin to discuss the book. All right, so we have two books to get into. The first book, so that would be from, I guess, two or three weeks ago, is A Therapeutic Journey by Alan Debaton, A Therapeutic Junior a Journey, Lessons from the School of Life. And so Alan Debaton has um, he's created this uh, I don't know if you call it a, a group, but basically um, the School of Life produces lots of videos online, lots of books on a whole range of topics. I highly recommend them. You can go on YouTube and see a lot of the videos, but also there's many books. And um, I read the first book in that series. I believe it's the first one because it's called The School of Life, which goes over lots of different topics related to psychology, mental health, and just living life. In this book, A Therapeutic Journey, which just came out recently, it's a very touching and humanistic approach to looking at the process of going through a type of breakdown, like a mental breakdown, depression, anxiety, whatever, maybe leading to that type of a breakdown. Uh, but then also, it's a book about, as he says, resilience and about how do we find our way back and things we can do and Um, Everything from art to even foods that we can eat to um, how a friend can show us love through that process. But it covers a lot of topics related to mental health, even psychotherapy, love, parenting uh, within this book. And I really enjoyed it uh, greatly. I really like his way of thinking in general when I've seen him speak or read his writing. I tend to enjoy it, which is why I wanted to read this book, and I uh, really greatly enjoyed it. So highly recommend the book, and I'll, I'll talk more about it now. Um, but as I said, it gets uh, goes through this process of we're feeling okay. We can feel like everything's fine until one day we don't, and we slowly or maybe quite rapidly find ourselves um, in a type of hole, and it really can feel that way sometimes when we're feeling really down and like we can't go on. And he covers these heavy topics of feeling down, how it makes us feel, and even at times getting to the place where we might think it's not worth living anymore. Uh, and so I, I appreciated how uh, the book was very sensitive in talking about these difficult things that we go through and that we all go through. 
not everyone will experience the same type of mental pain and anguish, but it is a part of the human experience. And many of us will feel very down at some point in our life. And even that itself is important to share because it normalizes what we go through. Unfortunately, when we're feeling very down and down on ourselves, um, we feel bad, we're not feeling good about life, we can feel hopeless. And on top of that, we often will shame ourselves because, you know, how could I be feeling this bad? Or look at everyone else being so happy, enjoying their lives, and here I am so depressed and down, and I can't get out of bed. Well, the truth is, everyone goes through these types of down times. And it's very uh, normal in the human experience. It doesn't mean it's healthy. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do something about it. But it's normal in the sense that it's very common, that you're not the only one. And so I appreciated the perspective the book shared in really humanizing this experience, normalizing this experience, that you can expect that you'll likely have a down period in your life. And if not you, then definitely someone you know or someone close to you and what we can do. Also sharing that during those times, how our brain is going to be focused on negative things. And this is another reason why it can be so hard to get out of these dark periods is that when we're feeling down, the memories that come to us are more the negative memories. We see more negative things in the world. We expect more negative things to happen. And so this can contribute to a sense of hopelessness that I'm not good. The world is not good. The future won't be good. So what hope do I have that, that things are going to get better? Um, but again, the book is not just about breaking down. It's about resilience. And he shares even some insights of how a friend can be there for us and help us through this. Or so we can also think if I'm that friend trying to, to help someone, giving them the type of love that will help them. Um, and one thing I, I liked is that there's this approach of, non-judgmentalness so when we're down of course it's easy for someone to come to us and say oh why are you down you should be happy you should feel good life is good get yourself going but he was sharing that we can approach someone with much more understanding a much more non-judgmental way of looking at them giving them love giving them space to be you know a lot as far as even breaking down being uh, upset Maybe they're saying things that don't even quite make sense, but we're still empathizing with them and giving them love and support. And that usually giving someone just some strict advice of, oh, you should do this or you should do that, rarely helps people, rarely helps them get out of that dark place. Um, sometimes we can think of someone being in a dark place, being so isolated that something that can be very helping and healing is just to go sit with them in that dark place. You don't need to make it brighter. You don't need to pull them out of it. But just to go sit beside them can be very helpful. It'll take away that alone feeling that they have, that loneliness, and that feeling that I'm no one wants me, no one would want to be around me. Just being there itself can be enough. And I've often recognized that people, especially when it comes to emotional pains, we tend to think we have to do more than we need to do and because of that, we actually end up doing less. So because we think we have to do more than we actually need to do, we end up doing less because we try to change too much. And because of that, the person actually 
might resist more, might push them back more, or we're going to get more frustrated because we think we need to change their mood and they're not changing. So we think, well, what's the point? Let me just leave them be, let them figure it out themselves. When if we realize we probably can't change much, but being there can still be very valuable. Um, we can allow ourselves to be more helpful to the person who's going through something very difficult. He also goes through um, things like how important our childhood is. And this is one of those very cliche things about psychology and about therapy where, you know, we go back to your childhood and, uh, you know, people will joke, well, it's all about, you know, my mom or my dad and everything comes back to them. And like many cliche things, it becomes cliche because there is a lot of truth to it. And so, yeah, it's not fair to say everything um, comes from that. And it's also not a good idea to stay in just blaming. So just, oh, uh, you know, I'm this way because my mom was this way, my dad was this way, and, and I'm angry and hurt, and that's it. We want to understand what happened to us, but use that understanding to help us to then live a better life eventually, at least it might take some time, but by learning that and that self-awareness, and he talks a lot in this book about self-knowledge, self-awareness, and then also self-compassion, um, by that self-awareness, we can then choose to make different decisions than we have. We become conscious of what was unconscious and now might be able to do different things. But those early relationships are hugely impactful in who we are and who we become. And so it could be cliche, it could sound like it's too stereotypical, but there's truth to what we're talking about here, that what happened to you in those early years is going to lay a very strong foundation in who you end up becoming. And understanding that can be very, very helpful. So there's many chapters looking at things like that, self-knowledge, self-awareness, which is a lifelong journey. You're never done learning about yourself. I, I was having a conversation with someone and I tend to think of myself as a self-reflective person and I've gone to years of therapy. And sometimes you can get to this point as we often do, even from a very young age, you know, lots of times in our adolescence, we think we already know it all. What else do I have to learn? And similarly, when it comes to knowing ourselves, you uncover so many things and become aware of so many things that you can get the sense, well, I've probably figured myself out by now. Look at how much I've uncovered and all the work I've done. Uh, but I was sharing with this person that every so often um, you'll have this, I'll have myself, I'll have a realization about myself like, oh, wow, I, I can't believe I never noticed that about myself before. I never recognized that or understood that. And it seems like something huge uh, that I was totally unaware of. And so it, it's a lifelong process of self-awareness, self-knowledge, even to understand yourself at a certain point in time. But of course, we are always going to be changing throughout our life. So on top of that, there's always more to learn. Just like we talk about in our um, relationships, especially romantic relationships, we sometimes can have this sense that I totally know the other person, but we can't even fully know ourselves, and we, so we shouldn't expect that we can fully know someone else either. Um, he shares, as I mentioned, art, and he goes through different artists and uh, different paintings and works of art. There was one really, um, I'd never seen it before, but this photographer has taken pictures of herself when she was a child and then added herself now as an adult into those pictures. And I thought that was very sweet. It's something that we often talk about in psychotherapy, helping people find themselves as a child and, and giving that child some love and giving them care. But I'd never seen someone actually 
do the the artwork and and the photography work to to do that. So we find her as a young girl, and then now she's put her adult self next to that young girl. And so we'll often talk about reparenting ourselves or giving ourselves the love we did not receive, and how that can be so healing. But here, this artist has found a way to actually show that in a visual form of putting herself in her childhood, uh, which I thought was quite sweet. Uh, I really enjoyed this. He had a whole section of the book on freedom. And he shared how um, freedom is this huge idea, very emotionally loaded, and especially in a political sense. And he actually said he thinks part of why it's so loaded in a political sense is that politicians are doing a type of sleight of hand, that they talk about freedom in a more uh, political sense or in even the sense of the country being free, but it's replacing or it's becoming more intense for us because we also have this sense of wanting more psychological freedom. So they are talking about freedom politically, but really we are being impacted so deeply because we long for a personal and psychological freedom that he talks about. And then he says that if we were to have a charter of what we can call psychological freedom, he lists a few of the things he thinks would be important to have in there. And I'll read you some of those. So um, here are the, the, this is like part of the charter, he would say, for psychological freedom. Freedom from fear of judgment. Freedom from the weight of public opinion. Freedom from society's ideas of normality. Freedom from society's definitions of a good relationship. Freedom from standard beliefs about status. Freedom from expected consumption patterns. Freedom from fashionable opinions. Freedom from the pressure to be normal, ambitious, or optimistic. And as I read this whole section, it became very clear to me how much psychological freedom I don't have or I haven't given to myself. Um, it's something that we are, of course, impacted by what's happening around us. But nonetheless, it's going to be our choice to give ourselves that freedom and then deal with whatever consequences come with it. But it's up to us to to do that. And of course, anytime you have freedom, you lose something too. When you get anything, you lose something in the process. So if you want to be free of people's judgments, you have to be ready to um, have some dis more disapproval from people or people not liking you or making fun of what you're doing or judging what you're doing. You have to be ready for that, but you would then have that freedom, that fear of judgment. So it was a very uh, eye-opening chapter or a, a section of the book because it was talking about all these ways uh, that made me realize how not free I am as an individual and how most people are not and how it's something we can strive towards when we see people who are living these more free lives when they're not concerned by the judgment of others, for example, um, what kind of life they live and how beautiful that is. So I thought that was very interesting. There was a whole section of the book on freedom and psychological freedom uh, that I really found valuable. But again, this book is like a, it's kind of like having a friend, the type of friend he talks about in the book that we can be, but there's this very loving feeling in the book, a very humanistic approach to mental health and mental unwellness going into what it's like to have a breakdown, but also building ourselves back up, but also a reminder that it's something that many of us will experience while we can keep in mind that it's not a permanent feeling. We go through these periods, but it doesn't mean it's going to last forever. It gives you definitely uh, hope 
and I think that book, this book is great for that. So um, again, highly recommend it, A Therapeutic Journey, I said that twice, A Therapeutic Journey by Alan Deboton. Let's go to our first commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So the second book I'll be covering today is Remember by Lisa Genova. Remember the science of memory and the art of forgetting. Um, and I really enjoyed this book. It covers um, human memory and try to understand how we make memories. Also the um, fallibility of memory, how we get things wrong. It also gives some tips on how to improve your memory and to stave off things like Alzheimer's disease in your future. And so it really was enjoyable. And some of it I had, I knew about memory, but a lot of it was very uh, new and maybe I'd forgotten um, some of it, which was a experience I had throughout the book that kind of made me laugh. I'm always trying to, of course, uh, with any book you're reading, you want to learn what you're reading, but I know I'm going to do the show. So I have a different mindset reading the books for the show. And sometimes when I'm reading, I want to go back to previous page to see, am I, what was this term again? Or am I understanding this correctly? And I would kind of laugh at myself because the book is remember and it's about memory. And I was trying to see if I remembered things from the book. So let's see how well I, I remember the book that I read on memory um, by Lisa Genova. Remember, I hope you will uh, read it yourself. But let's think of what does it mean to even have a memory or how do we make a memory? So um, creating a memory takes place in four basic steps. This is from the book itself. And so those four steps are as follows. The first one is encoding. So that is basically your brain capturing whatever it is, the, the sight, sounds, informations, emotions, meaning everything that you have perceived uh, in that moment that could become a memory. So that's first the encoding stage. Then there's consolidation. So this is where your brain is linking all those previously unrelated collections. So you have the, the sights, the sounds, every, your emotions all happening in the same moment, but in consolidation, it's linking them all together into a single pattern. Then we have storage. So this is where the brain is then storing this memory into long-term memory so it can stay uh, with you and you could retrieve it later on, which is the fourth step, retrieval. Now you can potentially retrieve this memory, activate all of those associations together to bring back that memory. So encoding, consolidation, storage, and then retrieval. Now, when we're looking at these different stages to really make a, a memory, we need all four steps and we can have interruptions in any of those four steps, which would not allow for something to become a memory or for you to store something in memory. So that first one, encoding, what's really important here is that it's what you pay attention to. So she definitely dispels a lot of myths in the book that we have about memory. For example, sometimes uh, people will think that our memory is like a tape recorder. So everything I've ever experienced is somewhere in my brain and you can access it if just, you know, you have the right cues or the right way to get to that memory or through hypnosis, you can find a memory in there of every single thing that's happened to me. And that's just not true. Um, to begin with, uh, we don't have everything stored in our brain. It's not like a video recording that you can just play back at any time if you're able to do it. We only can store things that we pay attention to. And so there's going to be um, not so much 
that we experience that we actually internalize. And on top of that, memories are not infallible and over time can degrade and lots of things happen, which I'll talk more about. So this idea that you're in your brain, you have everything that ever happened to you in the way that you can retrieve it is not true. So we have to dispel that. And so if you don't pay attention to something, it won't be able to go into your long-term memory and be formed as a memory. And this is actually something that many people experience, for example, when they meet someone and people say, I'm really bad with names. And they might think I'm bad at remembering names. But really what's happening is not that you're bad at remembering names, it's that you never paid attention to the name in the first place. And because of that, it didn't have a chance to get stored. So if you're a bit anxious Uh, Let's say if you're socially anxious or just anxious in a particular situation or preoccupied with yourself when you're meeting someone, then they might say their name and you say your name back, but you didn't actually hear what they said. And so it's not possible for you to store that person's name. That's actually why um, there's different things you can do to help make it more likely you'll remember people's names. One of them is to repeat their name. So someone says, hi, my name is John. And you say, Oh, hi, John. And you repeat their name out loud. That way you have to pay attention to it. And it's more likely that you will then remember their name. But many instances of where people think they have a bad memory or they're not remembering things is because they actually didn't pay attention and give that attention because the only things that can get stored into our memory are things that we actually pay our attention to. And this is why one of the ways you can improve your memory is to be more mindful. The more we are in the moment, the more we are likely to remember the things that we experience and the things that we go through or information that we are presented with. So uh, paying attention is is the first step in memory. And often people who think they have a bad memory for certain things, if you look at it more closely, you might recognize that you're not paying your full attention to whatever those things are. And because of that, Uh, that encoding first stage is not even possible to then allow it to become um, this longer term memory. So that's something very important. Um, Also things like stress. If you're very stressed, you're less likely to uh, remember things or, um, well, it works in two ways. One is actually you might remember some things in the moment more because things that are more emotional are more likely to be remembered because um, the book is about remembering and also forgetting, we forget most things and we tend to forget things that are mundane. So if you have dinner with your family every day at 6 p.m. and I tell you, tell me about dinner three weeks ago, if it was a typical dinner, you're not going to remember much. If something really extraordinary happened, you will likely remember it. But most of those dinners will blur together into just a undistinguishable type of heap of things you've went through. So if something intense happens, you're more likely to remember those things. And even that can make sense if we think of how we would want the brain to work. If something is significant, something brings up big emotions, it would make sense that we want to take note of this. And that's kind of how the brain works. Pay attention to this. This is important. So if you feel stress or you feel some intense emotion, it can help you form that new memory because it will make it more significant. But where stress can impair our memories, where you're trying to retrieve a memory. 
it makes it harder for you to pull memories back out. And so if you're taking a test, this is why people can go blank, or we talk about test anxiety. They studied the material, they know it, but now they get into the tests, they look at the first question and they're not sure if they know it. All of a sudden they start to panic, they worry, oh no, I'm gonna fail this test, I'm gonna get kicked out of school, and all these worries start to cascade. And because of that anxiety, it's actually now even harder for them to retrieve the information that they know. And then unfortunately that could lead to even more of this anxiety and catastrophizing of how bad things are going to go. And now they can't remember anything. And then the exam finishes, they leave and they're a little bit stressed. They start to calm down. And now all the information starts to rush back. Oh, I knew that one. I didn't, I put this answer, but I know it's this. And because now they're calm and the anxiety has subsided, they're able to retrieve um, what they knew, but they couldn't access that information when they were feeling stressed and anxious during the exam. And so related to retrieving the memories, um, you know, going back to this analogy that isn't true of our brains and our memory like a recording device and you play back the video, memory is always a reconstructive process. So what that means is that for me to tell you a story about something that happened to me, I have to retrieve it from my brain. I have to try to give myself the cues to bring back that memory. And in that process, I'm reconstructing what happened rather than just replaying for you something that, that happens. And this is where some very interesting things about our memories come up. And so uh, the first part of the book, she talks about memories, how we form them, the different types of memories. For example, there's episodic memories, which are like, for example, if, um, memories for things that happened. But then there's semantic memories, which is including things like information. So if you know that the capital of uh, Paris or the capital of France is Paris. That's a semantic memory. We also have muscle memory, which is how we, um, you know, learn to do actions, which becomes much more unconscious rather than, for example, thinking of what's the capital of France. If I tell you, how do you ride a bike? You can't really describe it to me in words of what your body's doing. But if we put you on a bike, you'll, if you've learned how to ride a bike, you'll be able to, to go ahead and do it. So the, the muscle memory is something that becomes more unconscious and automatic. Um, and interestingly, um, even if you have the inability to form new memories from some type of brain damage, and there's, there's stories throughout the medical literature about this, if you lose that ability to form new semantic type of memories, so um, there, there's a story of this famous man, H.M. was his name, in, uh, and now they've released his name because he has since passed, but nonetheless, he had a surgery because of seizures he was happening having, but they removed, I think it was his hippocampus and other parts of his brain. And because of that, he can no longer form new memories. So for decades, he was being um, working with these doctors and he couldn't remember them. Every time he met them, it was like the first time he was meeting them. Um, it's very heartbreaking. And so he couldn't really remember anything new or learn anything new. But what they had him do was to draw a star using a mirror. So you've probably experienced this when you're looking at a mirror, everything is reversed and it can be very hard to control your movements to, to match what you're trying to do. And so if you try to draw while only looking at the mirror and not looking at the paper, it could be difficult to get good at that, drawing a star and making sure you're, you're going in the right directions because everything is flipped, it can be hard to do so. Now, what they had him do was they had him continue practicing to draw stars looking at the mirrors at the mirror now you would expect well if he can't form new memory then he shouldn't 
get any better at it. But sure enough, he got better and better at doing this over time while never remembering that he'd even done this before. So every time he thought it was the first time he was doing it, trying to draw while looking at a mirror, but he kept actually getting better at it over time. So we can see that muscle memory seems to be different in this way that even if we can't form new types of semantic memories, we can actually still improve the ways that we uh, do certain things as far as behaviors or actions. So as I was saying, the first part of the book is all about these different types of memories and how we remember. But then she says, well, all this is great, but the truth is our memories aren't that reliable. So we get it really wrong and we um, don't remember things as well as we think we do. And so that's a big uh, finding in a lot of the research is that sometimes we think of these flashbulb memories as really memories for big events, whether they're historically big, like September 11th, or big in your own life. And because they feel so vivid and they seem so significant, we tend to think they must be very reliable, that what I remember about um, this memory, what I remember about September 11th and where I was and what happened must be very reliable. But they've done lots of research on these types of events where they have people write down, let's say, a day or a few days after the event, what happened. And then a year later, and then also maybe five years later, 10 years later, they ask them what happened that day. And what they find is that people are very off in their memories of what happened to them. So they write something a few days after it happened. They have them come back in a year later and write back, write what happened on that day. And all of a sudden it's very different, but they're very confident in what they're writing. Oh no, I remember exactly. I was in the room with my mom. We were having breakfast and then we turned on the TV and saw the news and saw the building was on fire. And they'll say all of this vivid detail, um, but then they go back and read their original account and they see it doesn't match. And what people tend to feel is that, no, there must be some kind of mistake here because their memory feels so right now that they think, you know, no, that must, I must have been wrong back then because this feels too real. But really, we should recognize that it means that our memories just can be imperfect and they change over time. And so lots of things can contribute to this, including the fact that every time we recall a memory, then let's say we retell the story, based on what we say, how we say it, if we included some new memories or embellishments in that story, now when we um, put that memory back away, it's, it will be in this new form or these new elements might be added to it. So if you imagine that, um, you know, I spilled my drink, but now the next time you say it, you spilled your drink and the cup, the glass broke on the floor. Now you will remember that the glass broke. And from now on, when you say the story, it'll feel very real that the glass has broken. So our memory is incredible in that it helps us do so much, but it's also very fallible in these ways that it's important to understand as well. That things that we think we're so certain about that we remember, um, we ought to be aware that we, we shouldn't be so sure. Uh, one way I experience this regularly is when I work with couples and they stay, you know, they say, oh, last week we had an argument. And one of them will tell the argument and the other one's like, that's not at all what happened. And then they share their perspective of what happened and it's very different. And they might get into arguments, no, you said this first and I said this or, you know, and, and this back and forth. And often I'll have them stop because, of course, what happened does matter. But if we spend all our time, time trying to litigate the exact details of what happened, we likely will never get anywhere because we don't have... Uh, a recording of what happened. And also it's not so important. What actually could be more important is to recognize the experience of both people in that argument, which 
will be different. So it's just a very common thing that comes up. And I'll, I'll tell them, of course, not just in therapy, but in general, people could be deliberately lying, but even without deliberately lying, two people will likely remember the same story very different, differently or the same incident very differently. So we see all of these ways that our memories are not uh, infallible. They make lots of mistakes and we can understand the, the why. Uh, and, and once we do, that can help us be more, I think, humble in recognizing the limits to our own memory when things might come up where there's discrepancies in our memory and what someone else says and realize it doesn't mean either of us is lying, either of us is wrong. Probably neither of us has the whole story, the, the truth, as they say. It's not one person's side or the other one. There's a third one, which is the truth. That's usually what's going on, and accepting that could be really uh, important. Uh, to share some of the advice she gives for helping ourselves with our memory, one very critical aspect is sleep. And um, sleep is important for memory in a variety of ways. One, when you're trying to make new memories, sleep will help you in that consol consolidation process and to make it stored into your longer-term memory. So they'll do research where people will try to learn some new information, a list of words, and then some people will sleep and others will not sleep. And during that time, and they retest them, and the ones who've slept perform much better. Also, if we sleep enough, we're more likely to be able to pay more attention. And remember that attention is a, uh, pun intended, uh, but attention is a very big part of making a memory that if we don't pay attention to something and the more attention we pay the better we can create a memory or put it into long-term memory so if we're not sleeping enough we're less likely to be able to pay as full attention as if we have slept more we'll be more likely to pay attention also regular sleep is helpful in the prevention of things like alzheimer's disease because as we sleep the brain does some cleaning up of plaques and different things that form that could then contribute to the formation of Alzheimer's disease. And if we get enough sleep, we're less likely to get there. So sleep is very important as uh, for our physical health, but for our mental health and also for our memories. And just to conclude, she shares, you know, we, we are often afraid of things like Alzheimer's disease or losing our memory, which is understandable because it doesn't, uh, it's not pleasant to experience. Um, but often we can catastrophize certain things and think that, okay, if I forgot why I came into the room all of a sudden, that's that must mean I'm losing my memory. Or uh, I forgot to buy something at the grocery store, that must mean I'm losing my, my memory. But these types of slips of memory are very common. They might get more common as you age, but most of these types of things are quite normal and we shouldn't um, become you know hysterical or very worried that if we forget some things here and there, it means we're already on our way to dementia or Alzheimer's or anything like that. It's just a normal part of uh, experience of being human. Or tip of the tongue experiences where you're trying to remember the name of, let's say, a movie or an actor or something, and you know you know it, but you just can't retrieve it. You can't get yourself to, to remember it. That's very common too. It might get a little bit more common as you get older, but to experience tips of the tongue experiences is very, very common. So I um, really did enjoy this book did a great outline of memory, what it is, also what it isn't, and things that we tend to believe that aren't true. Also, some advice of what we can do to help ourselves with our memory and preventing Alzheimer's disease. Things like exercise also are very important, and what you eat can also make a big difference. So I, I greatly enjoyed this book and would also recommend you check it out. And that was Remember by Lisa Genova. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hi. Thanks for calling. Yes. Thank you for giving me your time. Uh, um, I don't know how to actually start it, but uh, I would just give you a background about myself. I have moved to Canada almost 20 years ago. And um, I'm 44 years old, uh, 44 years old, and I study architecture. And I got married like uh, uh, 11 years ago. We have a son that is uh, roughly seven years old. Uh, it's been really tough past few years, uh, especially after my son was born. And uh, although and my husband is uh, uh, also 48 years old and uh, an architect as well. Um, but uh, it's been really rocking like um, since my son has been born and uh, um, I'm considering some serious changes but I don't know um, do you have any questions for me? Yeah, many questions but we'll get into them uh, as you tell me more about what's going on. When you say um, you're considering some kind of changes you mean like divorce? Yes, absolutely. Okay. That's where I'm in. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about, you know, you said it's been rocky since your child who, you said he's now seven, right? I'm sorry? You said your son is seven years old? Yes. Okay. Uh, seven years in like three months. Okay. Six and a half roughly, yeah. All right. So you said things have been rocky since um, uh, the birth of your child. So tell me, uh, rocky in what ways? What's been going on? Well, first of all, my, uh, my husband is Canadian, so... Um, uh, at the very beginning, I was I was in Canada. Everything was so new, and I wanted to explore. I I love the culture, and I just, uh, as they said, the um, the difference attracts you at the beginning, and then it becomes challenging afterwards. So mm-hmm. it was attraction to begin with, but then I didn't realize that um, the differences, the actual reality. And then I was okay, and I was obeying in all my husband's wishes and everything. And after my child was born, um, um, I, I had to have a C-section, and it started right there that I felt like, as a mom or as a girl to grow up, you kind of know what you need to do, how to change your kid, how to bait your kid. Oh, what are the needs? But I, I found myself that even in those matters, my husband is trying to decide for me. That was the very start that it was kind of open, um, eye-opener for me moment that everything just switched. Like, for example, I needed my mom's help because I had a C-section. He wasn't letting my mom to come in and help me. I would be like, well, I'll help you. I will give you everything. And it was, for example, I was in bed in the second floor. I was I was like, give me, please give me a plastic bag. He would be saying, why would you need a plastic bag? Use this. And I'm like, I need plastic bag. He, he goes, no, use this instead. Everything was a struggle. Everything was like, I'll tell you what to do. And that is when everything started. And it got worse and worse. And, and um, it got us where I am right now, to okay. be honest. Yeah, so, you, you know, even before you talked about the, the, the birth of your child, you said you obeyed. So I, I'm guessing that's related to this theme of um, him telling you what to do or making decisions for you. But the way you're describing it, then when you had your child, it was, of course, much more significant or brought out other um, intensity in your reaction to what he was you know, saying or him, what you yeah. feel like trying to control you and uh, things like that. So uh, I'm assuming this 
these types of conversations have come up where you've told him what you don't like or what's going on. So what's happened, you know, cause that's seven years ago. So what's been happening in the meantime and where have things gotten or have things changed? Has he seen your side of things? What's been going on and how you're dealing with this issue? Well, uh, for a year, uh, I was on mat leave, so we were using some of our um, kind of uh, whatever we had put aside. We're using that money, and I didn't work for uh, roughly like five years. I recently got back to work, and uh, he had two jobs. He was working two jobs, and um, I was running everything like from like uh, taking care of our kids and like sitting because. The truth is, like, architecture is um, some, at least my job was I had to stay till late night, really late night, and I found it's not beneficial for our uh, kid to both be an architect and working really late hours. So I was trying my hardest to kind of find a more secure job, like uh, working in the government kind of thing, and it took a while to get to these um, kind of organizations, which I am right now, and I've been working in it for, like, past eight months. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like... He never helped me around the house because it was always fight. The way he is, he, um, unfortunately, whenever I want to talk to him, he keeps repeating and repeating and repeating himself over and over and over until I obey and I say, yes, you're right. Or uh, he doesn't do, and if I want to buy anything, he doesn't do research. He just keeps saying whatever he thinks. He doesn't ask people. He doesn't do researches or he doesn't even read internet or anything. For example, the simplest example would it be that we had a turkey. We wanted uh, had a turkey dinner. We wanted to invite people over, and it was for lunchtime. And I told him, like, yes, you do the turkey. He, he loves to do the turkey. You do the turkey, it's a manly thing for you, okay, but there's a little gap on the top of a turkey in an oven that we can potentially put a pizza for our son for the lunchtime so the turkey, till the turkey gets ready at dinner time. He goes, no, there's no room. I'm like, have you checked? There is a little bit of space on the top. If you put a turkey underneath, you can put it, he can say, no, I know what I'm doing. There is no room. I said, okay. And usually we get to that point and you know he is sort of, I tell him, I just go and do it. And I went, I said, okay you know what, I'll do it. The minute he saw it, I said, you know what, I can move the turkey down. He came upstairs and looked at it. He goes, oh, well, there is a little gap on the top of oven that we can put. And I would shift the turkey down and we put a pizza up. Isn't it the, the most recent thing I can remember? Mm-hmm. But everything in our life is like that. He's always a no. My way or not a way. Yeah. I say it right, yeah. I know it right. And there is no, like, asking people or going reading reviews. And I'm the opposite. I, I read a lot, I research a lot, a lot, and a lot of my decisions that I make, for example, if I put in my, our son to any classes, I pick the best. I do a lot of research, I ask a lot of people, I I read a lot of reviews, and any classes we put our son or anything, our buyer or anything I do, I I'm not saying it's always correct, or it was 100%, there's not such a thing, but I do really good. And he always says, oh, thank, he, he doesn't say thank, he says, oh, this is good. I'm like, uh-huh, and he's like, thank me, right? Yeah, you're welcome. Hmm. Like situations like that, and I'm not saying I'm perfect. Obviously, there's another issue that, unfortunately, um, since my son was six months old, um, it has been a lot of times I left the house and I went to live with my with my mom for my parents for good four or five months, and it has happened five or six times in the past years, and. Uh, so he, what would had to, so just so I'm, you would go live with your parents for a few months with your child for what reason? For example, uh, 
well, fights over fights. He keeps ah. repeating himself. For example, I will be like, it's really cold and I'm freezing or it's really hot. Can we turn on the heat? He was like, nope. We open up the window. I'm like, our son is sweating buckets. He can't sleep. The window open wouldn't help. He can't. Just turning around, he's sweating buckets. Can we turn on the AC? No, we can't. Just turn on, uh, just open up the window. I'm like, you want to leave the window open over the night so our son going to freeze? And then yet right now, the temperature is so high, it wouldn't cool him down to fall asleep. And you would see our son is struggling. He's turning around. No. All build up the last time I remember. I just left the house over this. And then I mm. came back home because he promised he's going to come and see a psychotherapist. We have been to a psychotherapist so many times. He, the, the latest one, he will come to psychotherapist a few times, but then I wouldn't see any change in him. Hmm. Like little tiny changes, and I know even though if you go for, see a psychotherapist for a little bit, um, the max, or, or sorry, if you go for a while, the max change you would see will be like 10%. But correct me if I'm wrong, but I wouldn't see a lot. I, I wouldn't see like anything significant that would say, okay, I see changes. Well, yeah, I mean, the percentage, you know, it's hard to put a percent on what does change yeah. mean. But people, of course, can change. It's usually going to be gradual. But, you know, just in hearing how you're talking about the situation, I know you're calling me, it seems like, to ask for either my advice or my opinion. But I get the sense you've already made your decision or that the way you're describing it, that you think he's not going to change or he can't change or, you know, you're presenting the argument of, this is how bad it is. Doesn't it make sense for me to leave? That that's how it sounds to me. What you are saying, or if you're you're asking something, it almost seems like you've already made up your mind. I I haven't. I have not to be honest with okay. you, Nina. But I, I I would appreciate your professional sure. opinion if you have any questions from like how he thinks or how relationship is or any questions you have. Because I'll be honest with you, I'm really really. Like, how would it impact him? How would his life be? How can support him? Where would be he be? You're talking about your... It cut out for a second. You're saying about your son, I'm assuming. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Well, so here's the thing. You know, we're about to go to commercial break, but of course, um, well, everything that happens impacts your son. Divorce would impact your son, but staying together impacts your son, depending on how the relationship is. And what I always encourage parents to do is not to stay together for the kids, but to work together for the kids, meaning that um, if you can make the relationship better, then that's good. Stay together and have a better relationship. But if you can't, don't just think just staying together, but being very unhappy and having, having this kind of, uh, like what you're describing, this uh, in unstable marriage where even you're gone for months at a time, that's not going to be good for him if that's how things continue. So we're going to go to a commercial break. When we come back, I also want to hear from you what what gives you hope or what makes you want to stay? I know you said you don't want to negatively impact your son, but there must be something you see in your husband in this relationship that makes you want to continue. So we'll start there after the break and, and we'll get a bit more into what's going on, okay? For sure, thank you. Sure, all right, we'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we're with a caller. Let's go back to them now. Uh, caller, are you still there? Yes. Okay, so... As I mentioned before the break, I, I wanted to hear from you what, you know, in this relationship and your husband gives you hope because it seems that you are obviously still in the relationship. And also we want to see what hope we have to make things better. So tell me, um, tell me what you, what you think on that side of things, the positive that would keep you in this relationship. 
The positive, okay. Well, first of all, our kid is a boy. So I was raised in a family with three, uh, with three sisters, I'm the oldest. I do not much know about boys, to be honest with you, frankly. Like, if, uh, my dad was always working, and um, I feel like the world is so different. And I'm, I'm learning a lot about their personality and how they are. And I have really, really full of energy fun that I, I feel sometimes I cannot be always with him to uh, to release that sort of energy and i have to say my husband is really there for him mm-hmm. biking taking out energy level like you're, you're quite compatible that helps me a lot but at the same time um that's that, i feel like i always need that sort of a support from him to raise my son but um and I'll be honestly frank, I don't see myself with anyone after a divorce. I don't. I... Mm-hmm. So staying in this relationship, these are the benefits of it, plus financial aspects of it. Obviously, I don't want to start anything new. Part of me has moved from this city to this country, and now another move both for me and my son. So those are the benefits of staying in this relationship, but I, I'm not sure would I again regret it, or is it a good decision, or would mm. he ever change, or just some professional yeah. opinions, if well, you don't mind. Sure. Well, what you know, and what you shared, none of it was about your relationship with him. You're saying, you know, and it's good, you know, he's the way he plays with your son, and you know, the financial and other aspects of it, but. What about you and him? What do you? What's there for you? <sighs> oh, we're really different. We we have this love for architecture, but not mine is really a lot shallower than. Like less than what he has. He has such a devotion to architecture. Like if we went to travel, for example, we had to travel travel to Spain. All he cared about seeing five or six buildings whole day. The seven days that we were there, we saw thirty buildings to the extent that I, I would, he would bring me to the beautiful restaurant and let me sit in at night while there were blisters on my um, like foot. I wouldn't care where I'm sitting in the end of the night. All I care is the pain I was in. I didn't care to see these many buildings. Mm-hmm. But yet he was insisting no. So I had to fight and struggle so much. And eventually in one of our trips, he agreed that for like half a day, he would come with me and see a market instead of seeing architecture, architecture, and not even getting a cap. Like I had to walk it. I had to subway it. Um, hmm. By the way, do you remember what my question was? Yeah, what is that for me? <laughs> well, 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 I mean, the question also, what's, what are the good things? And as you know, you, you said the love of architecture took about four seconds and then it turned into something very, very yeah. negative. Um, yeah. What was ever good in this relationship? I know you said there was the, these like, kind of opposites attract kind of a thing, but exactly. what, what was good in the relationship? Like. Was there anything else that you, know, you, you liked about him, attracted? I was, I was raised somehow that I was always thinking that, uh, well, Canadians are this and they're gods and goddesses and 
you have to go there. The board is different. Even the type of architecture, I, I the style I followed here is like super minimalist, modern. And I, I was so interested to discover his world and what Canada is about. And I, I want to stay. I, I wanted to support when I move here. I wanted someone not to be Persian and to have sort of the support in this culture that has been raised here, not so much like myself, but I saw the opposite and the conflicts and the not being on the same page. Hmm. You and now going back to something else you mentioned, your dad was not around very much. Well, tell me about him. What was your relationship like with him? About that, I was a I I have a lot of similarities. Uh, with my dad and my other two sisters, I, he was always my role model. I always wanted to be like him because he's a dog. And um, I studied even like back home, you can study science. I studied science and biology. And uh, he was always my role model. I always want to be with him. Out of everyone that was always fighting with him, I was the only one that is still to this day, even today, so close to him, he's, I'm the only one that everyone can talk to in my whole family. This morning he was talking with me, stuff that he would not talk with my mom. I'm still the closest to him. My mom and my dad does not talk anymore. They're thinking about the divorce <laughs> at this age. Hmm. And I am really close to my dad right now, even to this moment. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that because you said he wasn't around much, and then, but then you're saying you're so close to him. Oh yeah, well he was working three jobs. He was having three jobs, but mm-hmm. I always saw him as a really nice person and like some someone. Maybe it was more of educational thing that I want to be like him, successful and respectful. Everyone respect him. Have a lot of he had a lot of say in the family, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Maybe okay. What well, what was your what was your mom and dad's relationship like? I know you're saying now it's not. It's still not good. Awful. But... I was raised in a really <laughs> hard uh, environment. I had a stepbrother, and uh, I was always, always, always fight over him. I we were always in my grandma's house, and uh, my dad and my mom were always getting into fight because of my brother, and uh, and not so much of a childhood. <laughs> hmm. What What was the fights yeah. over your stepbrother about? He didn't want to study, and my dad always was pushing him to study. He was eating a lot. Of, he was eating a lot. He wasn't cleaning up. He wasn't listening to my mom. He wanted everything. He was fighting my mom. He did. He wanted my mom dead. He didn't want my mom to be. He wanted his own mom back, and hmm. you name it. Hmm. And my dad was always taking his side over my mom. So it was always a war zone in our house. Yeah. And then, it, it, being a war zone, were you trying not to add to that war or to create problems? No, I was always the lonely one in a corner who was no one was even caring and taking care of. Hmm. I was really bad, and my studies were really, really bad. My grades were really, really bad, and uh, no one was paying attention to me. Honestly, I was I struggled so so much in my, all my education. And uh, eventually, once I got to Canada, I, I, I don't know, something opened up my eyes, and I, I, I got highest marks, I got scholarship, and I uh, was studying really, really my hardest, and I, 
I graduated with one of the highest scores. And um, yeah, but the way, childhood awful. Yeah, it sounds like it. And the way you described it, like being alone, being isolated, it, it does sound sadly reminiscent of how you describe your marriage. That you don't, you know, because the way you were describing everything was very much you were overlooked. What you care about doesn't matter. Um, yeah, so unfortunately, there might be something familiar for you there that you don't want. It to, is. It, yeah. it feels like I'm just. My life is the co- exact copy of my mom and my mom, my dad's life. My dad's personality is quite like my husband, like workaholic type of people who have no idea about psychotherapist, psychologist, nothing, just work, 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 not not being with the kids as much, you know, and mom doing everything in the house and like so much responsibilities on the shoulders. Yeah. Not that I want it to be like that, but I look back and it's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> And yeah, thinking about divorce is quite similar. Well, yeah, and the it's it is you know there's these I don't want to call them contradictions, but at times you know you're talking about your husband that he's good with your son, but then you're also saying oh he's like my dad and that not being involved with the kids. But I'm I'm trying to get not being involved with a kid with school or mm-hmm. uh, when I have a question, for example, what do we do with about a teacher? What do we do about education? He just chose us this idea. Like, for example, I say to him, financially, the school is not doing great. Why don't we help them? No, we do not need to help them because you're not supposed to. Like, the, the ideas he throws out, or he's just so off all the time. Hmm. <laughs> and he doesn't go and read or ask. No, nothing. Well, and it's, I mean, I know you're saying read and ask and those things, which, of course, are important when you're trying to find something. But I think you're also, the frustration is he's not asking you or trying to get your opinion on on things. But you're saying, going back to your childhood, this kind of invisible feeling or being um, alone in the corner. And so you find yourself, as we often do, in a relationship that's in some way reflective of your own childhood. And although it was unconscious to some degree, you chose it. And now you're here trying to figure out what to do with this relationship you chose even the way you um, described yeah Canadians or this relationship that you have it was like n- not a actual relationship it was more connecting to something you know bigger than life and probably how you saw your father as larger than life in some way um, it seems like you saw your husband that way but the thing is when someone is larger than life then they also might not want to see other people as as valuable or as seeing them as valuable as their own opinion and it seems like that's something that you're running into with your husband is not valuing others opinions or not seeking out other people's thoughts on things and not seeking out your thoughts on things and so again it's partially he's who you married you know there's not a big surprise there from what you described but you're recognizing that there's uh, a resentment there for that another thing to look at is you know, you're talking about your father and how you saw him so positively there might be some pain and anger you have towards him that you haven't acknowledged that you haven't um or maybe you have but that you haven't gotten in touch with that he you know he said he was your mentor and your role model in in all these positive ways but there could have been things that you were not liking about him so i don't know you know you're saying you're more like your mom um but when you look at their marriage not that we focus on blame but did you feel like you saw someone's side more than the other one's side? <sighs> to be honest with you, because I was always on my mom's like 
beside my mom and doing my homework beside my mom, I was always like ideas that my mom would put in my head <laughs> that had my other two sisters turn out against my dad, to be honest mm. with you. And uh, I, I was more on my dad's side, even though my mom was always talking bad about her, about him. Um, but then I opened up my eyes and I kind of married the same guy because <laughs> my husband is kind of has a lot let's put it this way he has a lot of similarities with him yeah um, I don't know what I've done hmm. all I know it's not working right now yeah well um, it seems like it never really was working or it worked the way it was it was which was that you know you were married to someone like yeah, your father and unfortunately that now you're now recreating that marriage that they had which you didn't want for yourself but now here you find yourself um, in that kind of marriage, and now you're saying you've you know you talked to your husband, and at times it seems like he's open to trying because he talks about therapy, but you feel like he doesn't actually change. When you go to therapy, does he seem open to what the therapists are telling him as far as what this to work on? This is the funny part. Once he comes, and this is the latest one that we're with, he asks him how he sees me, and he asks me how I see him. Mm-hmm. His response was so interesting. He asked him to describe me. He said, she's super kind, super socialized. She's happy. Uh, she's strong. She's smart. Like, you name it, he put in there in mm-hmm. one sentence. And I was like, am I like this? <laughs> the only thing he was he was saying and he wasn't happy with, he said, she said that she's really outgoing and we are not into nature and sports. And she's not if full, like, she um, kind of lied to me. And... I'm thinking to myself, I'm tired. I'm really tired. All I need is bed and mm-hmm. sleep. How do you expect me to come out? And it came one time that the same psychotherapist asked him, and this person is his age, is a male, and he's a Canadian. <laughs> That's why I picked him. And asked him, okay, uh, if you want to say emotional, if you want to do something emotional with your wife, what would it be? And his response was, we'll go out, bike it. And he was shocked. He was, is this how you... Uh, translate emotional or something like nice with your wife he, he, he was stunned and he didn't know how to respond and and he, my husband turned the question to him and said what would you do he said i would sit watch a nice movie hold her put my arm around him put my head on her shoulder and my husband even didn't know any of this hmm. well versus it came to me answering the question sorry go ahead no no go ahead go ahead and once it came to me answering the question, I said, to me, he's really angry. I've married a really angry guy. He kept repeating himself, and he's angry. He's angry at work. He hasn't talked with his parents for four years. He, he has no one. Hmm. He quit his family. I was, for three years, I was taking my son to see his family uh, because I felt like he needs blood here. He needs roots, something I don't have here. He needs that. I don't want to take it away from him. But then it got complicated because my son would be asked, they would be like, where is my husband? Where is my husband? And I had to lie in front of my son, lie in my husband in a side room. It didn't work. And I'm like, I'm lying to my, in front of my son, own son where your son is. And it's not working for me. It was becoming so, so complicated. Mm-hmm. So well, I, I told the psychotherapist, like, this is what I see. He has two faces. He's Super nice, super polite in the public, but once it comes to me, he's the exact opposite. 
he frowns at me, he doesn't want to see me, he, he, he just wants to slap me in the face all the time. Anytime I, I call his name, he goes, what? That's how he talks to me around the house. Mm. What? Well, <laughs> so this is like, you know, as I said, there's nothing positive you have to say about the relationship between the two of you. The only thing you shared was he's, you know, good with your son, you want to have him around. I'm looking at the time we're at another commercial break and I want to get to some place where we conclude at some level with, you know, with, with the situation. Um, but again, I, I'm wondering what keeps you in this other than divorce might be bad or scary because when you talk about him, you really don't say anything good. As I asked you before, it was that we share a love of architecture and even that quickly turned into his is too deep and he doesn't so see you again. I should like say this for example if he sees me working really late at night he come and uh, kiss my head sometimes at night I'm sleep we don't sleep together it's been like six years he chose to sleep in another room uh, he comes sometimes kiss my head or I was with the psychotherapist I was talking he opened the door and the psychotherapist saw me well it was a video call and he's, he, he sometimes brings food for me mm-hmm. or uh, well, here my my some... yeah, and my assumption would be he's, he's definitely not all bad. That's probably not likely. But what you, you know, your relation to him is it feels almost all bad. There's nothing much you share that's positive. Now you're sharing these these few elements, or even that one was in front of the therapist. So maybe again, it felt to you like it was because someone else was was watching. No, he wasn't ever that I am talking with anyone. Okay, I just I had a closed door. Okay. Um, yeah, so maybe, so it wasn't that, but, and I, I don't think he's an all bad person, but the way you describe him is that way, almost to, to the degree that there's nothing there for you in this, in this relationship from what you're saying, it's just to have him around your son and for your son to have a male around or for you to be able to handle, or you feel like you can't handle all your son's energy. Maybe that can be good. And you're saying, well, I'm not going to want to be with anyone other than him. You know, the feeling I'm getting is that you never wanted to be with anyone in an actually a connected relationship because you didn't have that or unconsciously you were more afraid of that than you realized until so you you chose someone who's very unavailable and you, you feel that but uh, you know we always have to be aware of that we chose someone often knowing who they were and then later on we get upset about when they show us they were who we thought they were you know and that seems to be partially the case here and so that's something you can also look at is that okay I've made this choice what do I want to do with it now and to not just be mad at your husband because it seems like he is who he was from the beginning or how how you saw him or you maybe didn't let yourself even fully see him you just saw that he was Canadian and you had these images of a Canadian person Canadian man and didn't let yourself try to even see the rest of what was going on and that, you know now here we are so again we're at a commercial break let's go but we'll talk a bit more after okay thank you sure yeah. all right we'll be right back Welcome back. Before the break, we were with the caller. Let's go back to them now. Caller, are you still there? Yes. All right. So, uh, you know, as I mentioned early on in our conversation, to me, it seemed like you had made up your mind, or at least made up your mind that the relationship is is not going to work. Um, but then you're trying to decide if you should stay or not, even if the relationship doesn't work. And so I want to know if you think there's any chance to make this relationship better. It's not going to be ideal. And as I mentioned before the break, based on what you described in your own childhood, I wonder how much you would have actually been ready for a very emotionally intimate relationship, um, even now, but especially when you, 
you met your husband. So based on some of those thoughts, tell me, what, what are you thinking for this relationship? Is it just, can I stick through it because of my son? Or do you have hope that this relationship can get at least good enough? It won't be ideal, but good enough for you. Honestly, uh, it, 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 when I had once I got married, I had this thing, this thought that we have to be able to talk together, we have to make decisions together. But after a while, I've, I, I saw it that I'm going to be lonely. I'm going to be making all the decisions. This is what it is. So I'm kind of adjusting to that idea. But if I see a slightly better and getting a little bit better than this, I might be okay. One mistake that I did, the psychotherapist that I was we were talking with, I kind of find it not as great. And I look around and I ask a lot and they were telling me that the psychotherapist that we should be talking with is emotionally focused therapist. I find few, but unfortunately in Canada, their English visit been great. I talk with them, you get 15 minutes of the free psychotherapist like, talk. Uh, the English wasn't great, and I know for the fact that if you talk with my husband and your language, English is not good, he won't accept you. And the last person that we're talking with, he, I, I learned at the end that he was making actually me and him fight. He started us fighting. And then another psychotherapist told me that his background is not emotionally uh, uh, what we call focused therapy. You have to find someone like this. I've been trying my hardest to find someone like that, that professional enough to help this particular situation of us. I haven't been able to find any. Hmm. So one fear that I have, if I get a divorce, for sure my husband gonna turn my son against me. He's that type that he gets angry at someone, he destroys the world. He destroys, he turns him against me so bad. I've seen in him, like, girls are like that. Your mom is like that. I'm really afraid of that. Plus, my son sweats crazy, like crazy. He, from, like, our house to the car, he sweats. I try to clean his hair, his hair so he doesn't catch cold or anything. My husband is the opposite. I know for the fact if I give him, he has him for Saturday, Sundays, will return back to me, and he's always cold, sick. That's another fear that I have. So what? I'm gonna take care of him during the week, and then weekends you're gonna have fun with him and give his sick kid to me again. Like there is a lot of these little things, and I know he's gonna torture me, my husband, financially. This is who he is. God forbid if he's, he doesn't like you, he just ruins your world, he destroys you. That's who he is. Hmm. These are the scary part that I have. Plus, financially, if I'm able to really support my son. Yeah, and I, I can feel that you're stuck, and I can't make you completely unstuck because I can't make that decision for you of, of what, what to do. I'm sharing with you some of my, my thoughts, but it's a decision you're going to have to make. Um, I don't know, you know, you're saying that you feel like you're picking between two bad situations. The marriage itself doesn't feel good, but you're worried that in divorce it might be worse, that he might you know the way you're describing your husband you think he's gonna turn against you in every kind of way from turning your son against yeah. you to financially maybe i don't know if that's true or not but that's that's where you find yourself um now i also want to add this you know you mentioned this going to your parents house for a few months and coming back as much as you're not actually getting a divorce but those 
back and forth, especially for months at a time, uh, it's going to have a negative impact on your son. So sometimes we focus on something official like divorce, but we're not realizing, well, what am I doing in the relationship and how much that might be hurting him? So that's just something I would want you to be aware of. And that's not, uh, it can't be part of the strategy long term to just keep taking him away for a few months and then coming back. Um, no, I will stop that. I, I, I absolutely know that. And uh, my mom was telling me maybe you just leave out the, leave out, leave the house and go rent somewhere and give him like six months to go work on him, work on himself, find a good psychotherapist and come back. And I know this doesn't work for our son. What do I tell him again? Like all these years he's been through this. Yeah. But you know, you know we say go to a psychotherapist. Does your husband say I need to work on some things? Does he see the things he needs to work on? He, yes, he would, he would tell him that you need to like think about this or do this or do that. He wouldn't do it. Like everything. He would not do it. You're saying? No, he wouldn't okay. do his assignments. He wouldn't do what he was supposed to. For example, it was. That psychotherapist told him that you should uh, be calmer, talk calmer to her, think about her too while you're talking, and just yourself. It happened that I was backing up in a garage, in a, a garage, and the door came down on me, and I wasn't my fault. I didn't do anything. Oh my God, he made such a scene. And two days before it, we just were talking to the psychotherapist, and I told myself, what is the point of this then? I'm always to blame. I'm always at fault. I'm always the one who's making mistakes. And then I took the car to the mechanic and he said, no, this garage door opener happens all the time. And we brought someone to check this garage door. He said, no, this is a faulty garage door. <laughs> None of it's my fault, but everything happens. It's my fault. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always to blame. Yeah. So you're saying the therapist will tell him to work on things, but does he say that's something I need to work on? Or no, he thinks the therapist is saying nonsense. I'm... You know, I don't have any no, problem. No, I totally agree that he has to work on this and that, but it does not. I didn't see much of a change, to be honest with you. Okay. And then towards the end, for example, uh, for example, one each biggest issue we have is cooking. He always cooks something raw, like it, the meat is really hard to eat. My son doesn't like it, his way of his cooking, and I really need to cook help with cooking because I work really hard and long hours, and I still need really help with the cooking. And I keep telling him, please, cook your meat more, or please make a better dish, like, a more delicious, our son eats it. No, my way or no way. Do I tell does him he, what to do? Does he actually say I, that? He says that it's my way or the highway? Or that's how oh, you yeah, feel? He said, I never tell you how to cook. You should not tell me how to cook. That's how he answers me <laughs> all the time. Those are my, my, my answers. Like... I don't tell you how to cook. Why do you tell me? I don't do, do you, tell you how to do this. Do you think he's right about that? Like there's things where he lets you, gives you space to do what you want to do, but... He never tells me how to cook anything. He, yeah. Because I make Persian dishes and he doesn't know how to cook Persian dishes. Yeah. And uh, he makes other dishes like Italian or his other side of pastas and stuff like that. But always his meat is not cooked and it's really hearty or he never cooks with like onion. So you always the taste of the meat in there which I don't like eating or well I mean look let me I'll stop you there I mean this does matter of like the you know like how you cook but and you're saying it's reflective of how he won't take feedback or won't you know hear you out he but he typically says yeah yeah but you know this overall sense of just if we if I think of how our conversation has gone it's just painting him as the enemy you know that he's almost like all bad you know um, yeah. 
and that there's so much anger and resentment you have for him and i'm sure so much of it is from what he does but i'm sure so much of it is also from other things too including your past and i hope you've you know you talk about him going to therapy i hope you've gone to your own therapy try to understand yourself more in all of this and how you yes, got here and yeah yeah i've started out a lot and part of it is apparently i am becoming to the type that after covid i am so covid cautious apparently my stress level has been showing itself and getting to the fact that i'm really clean and i'm really worried about my son or myself catching cold or getting covid um and I'm still sanitizing my hand and touching things or anyone coughing around us. I'm still really cautious and like ever. And it's, it's, I'm, I'm saying I'm at fault too right now, but I just, anytime my, my son catches cold, I have to take off work. My husband, I tell him, go get me ground meat. I want to make him soup. Why do you need ground meat? I don't want to go ground meat. Make, buy ground meat. Do something else. Like, I always have to ask my family to help me. He goes and starts, we get, we get to arguments. We get to fight. Uh, he goes, close the door, and I have to take care of our son. It always comes down on me. I don't know. Is it my excuse that I am now becoming so cautious about all the viruses around? Or because I don't have help? Maybe, or, but, you know, yeah, you're trying to control something that, you know, we can't totally control, you know, getting sick, these things happen. Of course, we can do some things, but you're, you're recognizing you might be too preoccupied with it. Now, that's something that could be worth exploring, but I, I think there's more to what's going on than just COVID has made you more careful about germs and, and getting sick. Uh, and you're, I hope you're going into your therapy to go even deeper than that of what else is going on but the way you present this marriage is that he's all wrong i know you said earlier you're not perfect but the the overall theme is that he's the wrong one and you aren't the wrong one and so there's just so much anger and resentment that i know you're saying he's not willing to work on things but you might be holding on very much to this he's wrong i'm right and there's really no hope for a, a marriage to get better if it's very much in that state that he has to change only and that's the only way things will get better. From what you're describing, the relationship doesn't seem like there's a lot of hope for it to get better. It doesn't seem like it ever was very good from what you're describing, that maybe this is what it was from the beginning. As I said, you use that word obey, um, but it wasn't until your son was born that you realized you don't want to accept this, which is understandable to not want to accept that kind of relationship. How he's going to be if you get a divorce I don't know. You you seem to be very afraid of that, and so you feel very stuck that either um, you stay in this and it makes you very angry and unhappy, or would divorce be even worse and what he's going to do to you, to your son, turn him against you. The turning him against you, he could. Um, I've seen it happen many times, though, where down the line, even like you said with yourself, your mom might have said certain things, but it didn't necessarily make you think a certain thing. It obviously will impact you, but it doesn't necessarily make that happen. So you would have to accept that you can't control what your son thinks of you completely. You can just be you and have your relationship with him if you decide to go down that path. I just hearing from you that you've made up your mind of this, this story of your marriage with him, that he's bad and that's it. And so I don't see from you a lot of hope that this marriage can actually become something good. You're just trying to decide, can I tolerate it? And is that the better thing? Or should I divorce and 
deal with that. Just a question for you, though. If I don't know anyone, I, maybe you have you know someone that potentially has the, can his English is to the level that will help our situation. Um, if we find a proper psychotherapist that can truly help, would is there any hope? Would you see any hope? I mean, well. I I'm always willing to do anything for our son, to be honest with you. But yeah, but you, it can't be. It, yeah, and I get to the motivation that would be your son, but it has to be that you you want to make a better relationship. So not just it's not just for him. You have to want it for you too to actually have a better okay. relationship. Um, I mean, no, there's I some hope, but the way, like I said, what you're presenting to me is that my husband is a bad man. Like, period. You know, there isn't like a you. You didn't really give much redeeming qualities for him. It does seem like you've painted him at least. I, of course, haven't met him. I'm just hearing your description of him. He, but it's he, all bad. Like, by, he, I, he never gave me his password to his phone or his, like, yeah, his, his email. He's he, 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 he's half Japanese, mm. so he's like, I'm me, you're you. It's always been like that distance. That as yeah, a Persian, but never but as I said, it. but I, you know, as I said before, I think you might have wanted a more distant relationship than you realized yourself. This is something, these kinds of things can be things to look at in therapy, but, you know, being the way that your own family was, how you were talking about being alone, maybe unconsciously you were drawn to a relationship where it would be more distant too. Like it wasn't, you maybe thought you wanted something very close, but you might have felt more comfortable with someone that would create space, would push you away. doesn't feel good. It doesn't mean it's your, your fault that it's like this, but I'm just saying recognizing that... I'm wondering if you were with someone that was very, very emotionally close to you, maybe that would scare you in a different way or that would um, not feel good. Or even that you said, if I divorce him, I won't be with anyone else. It, this does, it does seem that being in a real close, connected relationship is not something that you, seems like you unfortunately didn't get to experience in your family and you well, still might have. In our intimate times, I had a lot of issues. Like uh, he was in, um, he was in carefully like, um, taking care of himself, like he wasn't like really clean, but while we were having closeness. And I don't, and I, and I don't just mean sexual when I say closeness. I mean emotionally close. But, but I mean again, and I'm not. But even again, here it's a that he did something wrong that made it not work. You know, the the theme that always is coming up, and it could be. I'm just telling you what I'm hearing, is that you know he messed this part up. I wanted it to be good, but he messed it up, and. It could be true, but I also want you to be open to, was I open to having actual close relationship genuinely? Was I ready for that? Or was it even, like I said, it's not like you maybe wanted it at some level, but you were comfortable with this more distant, even the way you describe it with, okay, Canadians are gods. It's this, we can't, you know, whatever you believe in about God, you can't be that actually close in a, a close relationship. It's a very lopsided relationship that you have with a God. Um so you can't have an actually close relationship with someone that we're putting on a pedestal like that. So there's just those aspects too, that I want you to be aware of that you might've chose him unconsciously for these same things that are upsetting you now. Doesn't mean you either have to stay or leave because of that, but might give you more of an understanding because the story I hear is that it's, you know, he did this, he messed this part up. He's doing all these things. And much of it might be very much the reality, but just recognizing that often we choose a partner unconsciously, even in ways that hurt us, 
Um, and we, we can take some sense of understanding or responsibility from that uh, and then decide, you know, what you want to do based on, on knowing that. But I, you know, I think back to that stuck feeling, maybe you're hoping I can tell you definitely this can work or it definitely can't. I can't give you that type of a, a verdict to make it that clear. Uh, just hopefully some of the things we talked about will give you some food for thought to think about it. It seems like you're approaching um, this seriously by seeing therapists to, to get to a better place, but they'll help you get to a more clear decision that you're going to make. Either one of them, unfortunately, are not easy. If you stay together, it seems like it's been difficult and going through divorce will always be difficult. How it'll impact your son? Yeah, of course, it depends on what you both do. Um, but staying together in a very unhappy marriage is not going to be good for him either. So you have to keep that in mind when you're weighing uh, the two decisions. Doctor, do you know anyone in Canada that you can I don't. I, I don't. And I, I would, you know, I'm not saying don't do the research. It's very important to find a good therapist. And by good, it means a match. Also skilled, but a good match for you. So you're saying, for example, you think if they don't have a good you know, English skills, your husband won't even want to listen to them. Um, but don't build it up so much that they have to be this like perfect therapist. You know, I know you're saying you always look for that, but there's a lot of good enough therapists, I'm sure that you can find, but I don't know someone, unfortunately, that could recommend for you. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Good talking to you. Best of luck. Thank you so much. I sure. really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank Take care. Sure. Thank you, doctor. All right. Let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We have a few minutes left before we have to wrap up the show. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Good afternoon, doctor. Good afternoon. Thank you for your time. Sure. And as I mentioned, unfortunately, we have just about maybe nine minutes or so. I apologize. It's not so much, but let's no, see what we can get into. No, there is nothing apologize. Thank you for <laughs> your time, and I'll make it quick. Oh, sure. All right. So I'm in a relationship. I'm going to go ahead uh, and then um, give you a brief of background of both of us, mm -hmm. and we go from there if that's okay. Sure. Thank you. So I'm 37 years old. She's 33. I live in uh, U.S. in about like five years so far. She lives in Iran. And here I do marketing for a company. So I do not have a degree yet, but I'm in IT major to getting my associate degree. Mm -hmm. And uh, hopefully by next year, because recently I started, and, but my goal is uh, getting a master degree, hopefully. Okay. So uh, she does having a master of economics but her job is not related to her degree. And then, so now I would like to give you a summary of what was going on between us sure. uh, in past months. Okay. Also, I just want to inform you that uh, our relationship started just like a month ago, and the reason I'm calling is because I want to know should we go ahead and continue or not? Okay, so you've been talking for about a month. Never met in person before. No, but okay. we had a video call, of yeah. course. Okay. So uh, we've had talk about that how each one of us struggled in our life about like mental, personal growth, you know, 
psychological growth and um, also talking about that what would be, be pro- what would be a proper social behavior from our point of view with tons of like real examples that happened in our life so far and we had so much common and obviously enjoy talking and i just want to let you know at the every time we're losing the time while we're talking and the last um time it took about seven hours our conversation and uh, mostly recently actually we've been talking about that some type of books that we were reading Mm -hmm. like uh the wisdom of life or schopenhauer atomic habits or um the little prince so i was reading some of them she was reading some books and we started actually reading books uh, and uh, our conversation had really high quality uh, since the, of honestly of both of us mm-hmm. and so far i think she's a realist logical reasonable and she really believes in consultation when it comes to making a decision with her family and of course your dad did you say my dad yeah, she gets help most <laughs> <Okay>. of the time. <laughs> in all the time in uh, uh, her kind of points in her life. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, you know, you share, I could tell you definitely want this to continue. The way you're describing it, you're making sure to present it in a very good way. Tell me what concerns you about continuing. So, um, first of all, uh, the long distance. Yep. And the, the other thing is, unfortunately, I cannot or don't want or not prefer to enter to Iran. Uh-huh. So for future, that's okay. We can we talk about it. We can meet in a um, like third country, like a Turkey, and our family as well in August so far based on our plan. But the thing makes her concern is that when I'm not able to enter in Iran, you know, she kind of gonna be alone when she's trying to go on a trip or future. Yeah, I mean that of course the, the long distance is always gonna be a concern and um even the way you're describing to me it's moving very fast that you're saying it's been just about a month. And I know you're saying you talk for long periods of time when you do communicate, but something about that is a bit concerning for me of how fast it's moving um and we might think we get to know someone really well but until we see them in person we don't see a lot of what's really there between us so yeah if you can see each other in person i think that would be good to to allow for that to to happen um and you know i I wish we did have more time because i have a lot of things i'd want to know and maybe in a future show we could talk some more about this but you know, when we do long distance, we have to ask ourselves a question of, is there a reason why we're choosing long distance? And sometimes it's because it's an easier way for us to start something because of the distance, even though we say it's such a negative thing, but it makes it more comfortable for us to be talking from far away and not have to see each other and not have to, to face some of those things that come up in an in-person relationship. So that's something I'd want you to ask yourself. And quickly tell me, have you been in many long-term romantic relationships where you were 
in the same city, same place as the person? Not long distance so far. And then in the city, I haven't been in a long relationship because I did not want to get married. And since a year ago, I really decided to do that. And I just want to let you know how I actually found her. She called the radio and um, I actually called back and left my number. That's how we get connected. I wow. said she's talking really nice, <laughs> logical, her logic, her realist. And then I never think before about long distance. And when I made a contact with her, we talk about each other. Like I said, in about yeah. a month, we have hmm. so much in common. So you, you're putting me in a tough spot because this would be such a beautiful... Uh, Radio Hamra love story, but uh, I do <laughs> I do have some concerns about it at the same time, so I don't want to just say it's going to be okay. H- had she called in my dad's show, or where did she call in when you say... She did. Yeah, yeah okay. And, yeah. And I just want to let you know, she been she used to live with her family in China based on uh, her dad's job about 10 years, then mm. from 16 to 24, 8 years actually, and then she came back the reason I choose is because she'd been living out of Iran and then she was living by herself independence about three years of that eight years. So she kind of know, you know, paying bill, paying rent, yeah. management, everything she talked about, we have so much common. Yeah. I mean, there, it seems like there's a lot of, a lot of good here, you know, than how you're describing her. And as I mentioned, I wish we had more time because, and in general, you maybe even heard me with the last caller. I'm not going to tell someone definitely continue or definitely stop something because I think that could generally be unless certain circumstances, not responsible for me to make that decision for you. I'm always going to have concerns about a long distance, especially this type of long distance. Um, and if we had more time, I'd want to know more about what changed in you the fact that you said you never wanted to get married and now you're in this relationship especially it's long distance it kind of makes sense with this theme i was saying of you might have not wanted to get that close to someone so it's easier for you to start with someone who's far away which then um, when they're far away we also fill in a lot of who they are in our head i know you're talking a lot with her but we always have to be careful about that even when we meet someone in person we create an image of them that isn't totally based on who they've been to us or what we've seen because it's not enough to make a whole person but especially long distance we are very much susceptible to create someone who might not really be who that person is Um, and there's a much easier chance to present ourselves in a very favorable way when there's more distance so those are some of the concerns I have and as I mentioned I really hope you can call back and we would have a chance to go deeper into it. I'm not going to tell you to stop talking to her, um, but I definitely don't want to give you an endorsement that everything is fine and go ahead. I did share some of those concerns I have, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk another time in, in more detail. Sure. Just pretty quick. Sure. We uh, have a plan to meet in Turkey about like two, three weeks okay. before we make any decision. And like you said, you mentioned really fine. Hopefully this is going to be a Radio Hamra <laughs> love story. That that we'll see, but I don't want to hear in ten years the the Radio Hamra tragedy that we're going to get in trouble. So we want to make sure no, it's the no, right decision. Yeah, uh, but no, really, I would say before you see her, don't make a decision of who she is and who you are for her. Really, try your right. best to not go there. Um, you know, these things can become very romantic with how it's set up, but we have to be very careful not to get ahead of ourselves to see what's actually there rather than what we want it to be. So. 
If you do see her before we talk, best of luck to you there. Take it slow, you know, because it seems like it's already going very fast. Even I know it's nice to talk seven hours, but you don't need to necessarily do that. Sometimes that can be uh, too much and already creates a sign of kind of feeling of intimacy that might not fully be there. I do have to wrap up, but nice talking to you and, and maybe we'll talk again. Nice talk to you too. Say hi, please, to Parham and tell him we love you. Please come to the radio. We need to hear from you. Okay, him. I'll, and we miss him. I'll text him as soon as we get off the air. Thank, Thank you so much. Take care. One. All right. Big thank you to Farhoudeh here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Alakwi. Zan Zendegi Azadi. Mm-hmm.